and welcome. In this episode, writer and podcaster John Deere asks for help to uncover the secrets of Mario Barber's seminal 1964 giallo, Blood and Black Lace. Unfortunately, he's only got me, Dave Thomas, the equivalent of a useless police inspector, to assist. It was probably all down to a sex maniac. So try and ignore the dead fashion model in the corner and join us. This is episode 2, Due Signori in Giallo. A house of high fashion, a dazzling whirl of elegance, of exotic, extravagant beauties. An adventurous journey into the devastating allure of the most sophisticated women and their intimate secrets. Suddenly, these lace curtains ignite a drama that will lacerate your emotions. Blood and black lace. In this episode, we inevitably touch on scenes and themes of gendered and sexualized violence. again but this is where all the things that people generally associate with jello most obviously appear for the first for the first time is that right fair to say i i would say so this is the one this is the first one that really looks like a jello the first full length feature that really looks like a jello when you think of the visuals of a jello it's it's this one yeah yeah immediately after um the girl who knew too much barber's next film was the three faces of fear aka black sabbath and one of the three segments in that is basically the first color jello so there's a a half hour segment called the telephone which is uh, about a woman in her apartment who keeps getting called by someone who she thinks is her um, a former partner i think a former boyfriend who went to jail because she testified against him and he's out and he's coming to kill her and it goes from there you know it's typically jelly nothing is what it seems but in the american version um put out by aip under the title black sabbath uh, that one gets quite significantly changed because in the original italian version um, it's never stated but there's a pretty obvious lesbian relationship which they felt (laughs) exactly um which they felt the need to remove so in their version uh it becomes a ghost story and the the guy who got out of jail was in fact dead and then it, he comes back from the grave to exact revenge instead of from prison um, so that they can use that to kind of get around the fact that the person who is actually uh, responsible for the phone messages is the protagonist's ex, female ex-lover. Um, right. Which in the process completely ruins the story. And, <laughs> uh, it's all right, as long as there aren't any lesbians to corrupt society. That's, exactly. No, that's, that's fine. Um, but it does have an interesting knock-on effect because the, the, the changes that were made to Black Sabbath, the version that was released in the US, probably contributed to this film, uh, Blood and Black Lace, not being offered to AIP uh, mm. when it were, came to international release. So it went out uh, through a different company. I forget the name of the company. But that does mean that when it came out uh, internationally, it was more or less unchanged apart from the inevitable censor edits by the various different censorship regimes in, in different countries. Um, I think it had a pretty bad time at the BBFC, if I recall correctly. Um, but 
the the version that we're seeing around the world was by and large as it was intended to be seen by Barbara and, and the producers and the writers. And that is something that then, having done that that segment, plus having done Girl, Girl Who Knew Too Much, that's sort of the starting point for him to want to make a full-on, very colour film yeah. over... Um, I, I think so. Um, I, I I'm not entirely sure what the, the specific genesis of this film was beyond yeah looking to make... Uh, another mystery film and this one certainly gets much more into the um, explicit trigger warning prurient exploitative elements for 1965 than than the girl who knew too much and that was something that's kind of subsequent filmmakers would definitely run with but yeah, yeah this... I mean, it's it's something it's already very very different from from the girl who knew too much just just, just by looking at not just because it's in color but you've already stepped it up a couple of a couple of notches on the horror on the gore uh you know it's far more tactile in terms of you know stabbing death you know there's, there's also some you know fairly uh brutally inventive uh, deaths uh, mutilation um, that make it seem more than two years has passed since yeah. uh, since the girl who knew too much. Um, yes, and some of that kind of esoteric killing methods and um, you know exciting weapons of exciting siege weapons used to kind of see people off is definitely something that is picked up not only in in particularly some of the the more exploitative films that came after this but also obviously in later slasher movies um so so there's definitely something playing in there i think um when you know he's wearing like a spiked glove to uh, to do away a fashion model yeah that's the that's the that's the second killing isn't it that's like yes suddenly um but you know sp- spikes to the face aren't aren't new famous there's the very famous visuals of the of that's is that a Barber film? The um, Ex- yeah, well, the well very much so. Actually, I, I was going to mention that. So the um, spiked siege mitt or whatever it is. Um, there's a, a shot of the camera looking directly at the spikes, and the spikes sort of pointing to the audience with the light moving around it. So the shadows kind of track, um, and and that is so much like the shot from the Mask of Satan, aka Black Sunday, from the beginning, as the uh, as the the mask with the uh, large nails in it is being shoved into Barbara Steele's face. So you know, it's definitely he's kind of Barbara quoting himself, certainly, but um, but quite wonderfully. <laughs> well, it's sort of, I mean, not, I mean, the setup sort of gives you all that you, I think, you need. There's um, mm. a masked killer going around killing models from a fashion house uh, yes. with the supposed um, motivation of uh, of retrieving a, a scandalous diary. Mm. Um, but it's not really that it, it's sort of it doesn't matter does it it's the, the, the it's sort of like do we need a MacGuffin? not really no yes um uh, indeed i mean the the italian film the italian title sorry is uh uh six women for the murderer isn't it which correct yes yes six women, six women for the killer which is um which is pretty killer. accurate to be fair um <laughs> that is that is definitely what happens it, um, it is i'm sort of like i'm glad i'm glad i didn't know that before i watched the film because after you know the sort of say the third killer I, uh, third murder i probably wouldn't have got oh we're only halfway through uh, yes, it's a bit of... like it's it's a bit like in um, the fog, like John Carpenter's The Fog, because there is a specific number of victims that the the yeah. uh, 
ghost zombie lepers are trying to kill, aren't they? So when, once once you get to like the last one, you're kind of like, yeah. okay, it's fine now. <laughs> Except that sort of like it, it cheats, and then no one questions it because at the end, Hal Hubbard's going. They've all left, and it's gone slowly. It slowly as it arrived. It was you know inexorable, and it's it's you know, terrifying and unstoppable. Its arrival, and it pulls back the same way. But everyone sees it coming, and there's the huge anticipation, and it similarly pulls back when the killings are done, and Hal Hubbard's there going, "Well, why didn't I get killed? Fool, that was lucky." Oh no, there they all are again. Suddenly, and they kill <laughs> me. Like, no one, like, no one question. Why do they just come back? Why do they do that? That's, but then, if I'm if I'm now questioning um, the visual effectiveness for its for its narrative limitations, then boy, am I doing the, the wrong podcast. Yeah. You you almost yeah. kind of think that they forgot something. Like, sorry, 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 I know. Sorry, yeah. we, keys. Yeah. <laughs> in, instead of keys, it's kill the vicar. Yeah. Um, but that's uh, in, in, I mean, so you know, in those sense, it, it's not a particularly uh, gratuitous. Example of that as well but nevertheless um we know that of of the, of the fashion models we meet at the start six of them are going to die horribly and oh. whatever the whatever the reason and the machinations that play out with the with 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 with, with, with the characters uh yes. that will that will be the focus i mean but nevertheless yeah. it's it's extremely i think it's it's uh it's it's extremely effective there's something um i think very influential also about the visuals of the, of the killer because you the killer is seen uh, by the audience uh, repeatedly in plain sight, mm. but they wear a mask. You know, yes. You know, of- yes, and and that's kind of um, whether it's a direct influence, but that's a very kind of German crimey thing, as we talked about the, the sort of German yeah. thrillers. Um, and this actually had some German financing, so there are there are some German members of the cast um, which allowed it to then be kind of sold as a crimi in Germany, and it did it did pretty well in Germany. So. Subsequent, it's like subsequent to this that Krimis went from black and white to being shot in colour and getting that kind of garish, slightly larger-than-life cinematography. So it, its influence was, was felt, um, you know, sort of fairly far and wide in that sense. But yeah, th- th- this, is, th- this has some other elements. It's interesting because we talked about how some things that are very typical to a lot of Jally came almost fully formed from The Girl Who Knew Too Much and how much of those were then absorbed or it was just part of the group mind and you know all of those elements were just obvious to put into a thriller or whether it was kind of direct influence but certainly a similar thing happens here with different elements so you kind of have the body count murders you have the satiric weapons you have the disguise you know you have the raincoat the black gloves the hat no one's ever quite ever sees the killer clearly um you also have someone killing off a bunch of models which is a very jello trope that comes back mm. again and again um and actually not not just in jello i mean god Harry H. Corbett in The Cover Girl Killer from gosh, 1959 in the UK is about the earliest version of that I know, but um, quite, I mean, quite different tonally from uh, from this film, definitely. Um, but yeah, it's one that, that comes back again and again. Um, I think I've I think somewhere in in our future I've put I put a film called Delirium by by Mario Bava's son Lamberto. Um, I'm not going to say talent skips a generation, but it's a significantly different film, um, which is. <laughs> Which is about um, someone killing off the models from a um, a Italian porn mag, but it's like the only the, the porn mag that only exists in the world of Jallo, where it's basically treated like cosmopolitan or um, 
or Harper's or something. It's the nicest, you know, most lavish porn mag you've ever seen. But anyway, that's that's getting ahead of ourselves. I mean, is it more the case that, although this is seen as sort of the starting point for, for those things as well, that Barva simply took a lot of what worked with The Girl Who Knew Too Much and used it again with this, with, with other elements? Um, Very likely, actually. Certainly, I mean, he's certainly gone from using very distinct black and white photography to full-on colour and it's notable that his films in black and white look incredible Girl Who Knew Too Much looks wonderful Black Sunday is stunning but his films in colour also look absolutely incredible it's one of the remarkable things about him I think that and I kind of alluded to before that you know you don't really ever see a bad shot in in a Barber film, but this one is just like a a feast for the for the eyes with, with a lots of uh, a really nice kind of you know the the color red pops up you know something interesting is going to happen. Um, <laughs> usually involving violence mm. um, one of the things I was, that's added to here Mark, far more is the sort of uh, the sadistic nature of of, of, of the killings mm. although although we don't see too many killings in, in Blood and Black Lace um, mm. it's more about them, the killings have happened and that um, Nora is, is, is next whereas here uh, the killings are the thing they're taking place in the as 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 we see them, and they are very sadistic. Yeah, I mean the the killings. This, this is sort of the point at which I guess the killings are the reason the movie exists. And thinking about it, I guess that's because Barva had not exclusively done horror films, um, and he kind of remained a generalist for. Uh, most of his career so he would you know he'd be doing you know he did like viking pictures and and, um, westerns and 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 things kind of throughout his uh, throughout his career although sort of towards the end of it he tended more towards horror exploitation if you like Um, but he'd been sort of most successful I think with horror movies so this is really the point I think where it starts to cross over from this is a mystery but the reason why you're watching it really is to see some models get stabbed and that again is something that going forward not immediately because certainly around this point um you you are seeing stuff that's more mystery based um in the other films that are coming out around the same time but certainly going forward and definitely um after you sort of have Dario Argento coming into the picture later on the the violence is what kind of pulls you in to begin with really uh and so I think in that sense, this is where that begins. But it's a little more subtle than it would first appear. And, you know, certainly the killings are sadistic. But um, Barva's having fun with uh, the the police. I think it's uh, who's, it's Silvestri, the, 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 the main policeman. And you've, you, yes. you've mentioned before that one thing that defines the police in the shallow is, is their incompetence. Yes, or complete to, to, to listen yes. but it's it doesn't take much him much of a leap to then say that to look at these killings to look at the, you know how wild and sadistic they are for on, on models and pronounce oh it's a you know these are sex these are sex killings and that um the killer is obviously impotent yes uh, there is which, probably which, sorry I, I was going to say there was sort of 
although I joked in an earlier episode about, you know, it's all the dialogue written, written by incels. This is like what everybody is thinking. This is um, the assumption, the negative, particularly the negative assumptions that are being made about about this film are almost being anticipated by Barva because that's not true. And when you find out the actually the very first victim was a was a man, it's just not been connected with these yet. It's mm. which gives it more more credence than it m- might otherwise be credited with. Absolutely, and and there's probably some sort of drinking game that you could play when the investigating authorities in the Jello say it's probably a sex maniac, um, right? Okay. And you know, it very rarely actually is because usually a protagonist will be using some kind of uh, either established series of murders or you know, th- there's always some other motive. Um, that, that. Well, if it's just a serial killer or it's just a sex maniac, there it doesn't really mean anything to the characters. And presumably, there has to be sort of more an internal feeling about you know a sure. reason that, that's that's uh, that means something. That's why we have you know time with these characters, why we have dialogue with these characters. We learn you know not to any great depths, but their hopes, fears, you know, particularly their 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 their, their fears. So the killing has to have some significance there, and therefore the yes. killer's identity to add to that rather than it's just a random killer. We don't know their motives, which may be the terror for the characters but wouldn't have a particularly satisfying satisfying ending uh, and I yes. like the fact that they deliberately then in the, as the plans are revealed for, who, for who, who the killer is and how you see it you know it's it's quite well layered that after it's the killer has what they want uh, they realise that they must commit one more crime to pin the the blame on one of the models uh, and then make that look like a make that that look like a suicide. But in that, we find out there's a sort of more effectively there's more than one person within the killing, and one tends to betray, one intends to betray the other. So there are quite a lot of layers. Yes. If if you are being you know if you are lazily critiquing these films to just being problematic stab stabbing with breasts, mm. um, you're you're not really paying, you're you're not really giving it its full. I mean, there is that, and that's and you can still critique that on its own terms. Yes. But you can't call this sort of um, uh, a lazy simple plot because there are there are multiple layers going on that might not be readily apparent when you first think of Jello as a, as a genre. Yes, exactly, and and you know there are later films where it is all about stabbing and breasts, and the the, the plot is really irrelevant. But um, certainly the better ones, that's that's not the case. So a, a little bit of uh, just kind of setting it up. So as you said, it's a a fashion house um, that is run by two people. So uh, Cameron Mitchell, an American actor, plays uh, Massimo Morlacci, who is the um, I think the kind of administrator. CFO, I guess, <laughs> whatever his role. Their roles are a little nebulous um, of the of the place. Mitchell had worked with, uh, worked actually worked with Barbara a few times. They got on very well, so he was he was cast in uh, several of his films. Um, and then Countess Christiana Cuomo, played by Eva Bartok, who is kind of the designer and uh, head of the house. Um, she was actually in a couple of Hammer films, believe it or not, early on. Um, just I've seen her in the Crimson Pirate. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. she was she was in um, oh gosh, she was in Breaking the Circle, which is Cold War spy thing, if I remember rightly. I, I don't know if I've ever actually ever seen that one. And um, Spaceways, which is there, which we mentioned on my when I came on uh, Birdcast with you and Howard, because that's the one that's the murder mystery with the rocket in it. Yes. Um, okay. Yeah. <laughs> 
so you know so she had a, a fairly varied international career um, she so, was I, I also read i remember that she was um, forcibly married to a nazi when she mm. was when she when she was a child mm. uh, but then escaped and had the marriage annulled yeah so making um slightly dodgy horror films in italy was probably not the worst thing that ever <laughs> happened um and, and it's an, an interesting point actually so this is also set in Rome, but it's a totally different Rome too much, which is all travelogue, postcard, you know, please visit the Spanish I'm not steps. sure I actually realised we were no. in Rome. No, it's, just gene- it's, it's just generic urban, uh, urban environment. Exactly, yeah, sort of slightly historic. There's, there's a bit of, um, well, quite actually a bit, quite a lot of sort of the Gothic horror edge to it just because everything is sort of in big old manses with the, with the exception of um i think one uh, a couple of the characters have got sort of quite a modern apartment but everything mm. else is you know sort of lots of moldings and big fireplaces and um and you know shadowy corners and things so it's um i mean and, and you know barber had uh it, immediately before this had had made um the whip and the body with Dalia Lavi and Christopher Lee, which is one of you know the great Italian Gothic horrors, so I guess you know um, he was just in that little bit of mindset. But yeah, so within within the fashion house, uh, as you say, someone starts killing off uh, the models uh, on uh, ostensibly to get hold of a diary that the first victim had written and had put in sort of revelations about what was happening to various of the others and because all of them are, are mentioned in the diary in some form it appears um it could be anyone uh who is uh, who is responsible for the killings and um there's there are some uh, i mean there uh, uh, there are a lot of female actors whose whose purpose is really to end up as an attractive corpse um, mm. Although interestingly, most of them actually, you know, the, the, the generally they do have sort of slightly better characterizations than than in some films of the type. I don't think anyone, with the exception of the last victim uh, of the of the killer proper, uh, so Tao Li, who's played Claude Dantes, um, doesn't really do much except die. But I think most of the others actually have, you know, some like a, a little bit of backstory and a little bit of character development um, before they are shown in their underwear with spikes sticking out of them or whatever. Oh, good. <laughs> it's that kind of genre. <laughs> but it also contains um, a very, very striking colour palette, doesn't it? Which will become yes. which will become Goodness. a stock in trade of, um, of the Jello. Yes. Um, but is that something you can pin down to this film and Mario Bar in particular or was that sort of more widely coming in now that Italian films were being made in in colour I I think there are I, I, I think there is some influence um, I, I, I wonder how much of it because as I said you know that the, the this kind of led to the crimmy being switching to colour and you know I think potentially there's kind of almost like stealth influence of, of thrillers becoming more colourful generally so uh, Dario Argento swears blind that he was not influenced by Mario Bava to the point where I almost think he's protesting slightly too much because as a someone who worked in the film industry as a writer but was also mm. a, a film critic he, he would have he would have seen this um, so I, I think elements of that are probably playing into subsequent films I mean one of the big things that happened after this came out was I so this was 65 uh 66 
was um, Blow Up. Right. Which was, okay, yeah. which obviously is, you know, is mm. um, not not a not specifically a jelly, but a mystery that is centered within um, the kind of pop culture and the you know the the, the swinging sixties. Mm. Um, and I think that is very influential on uh, certainly some of the stuff like the Sweet Body of Deborah and the Carol Baker Lindsay films. You know, where where it is full-on pop art explosion it came to mind actually also when we when we do the uh the possessed mm. which i think is next time it came to mind then with the scenes where the um he's blowing up the photograph to then talk about that detail obviously uh visually visually quite different but yes you can see where um antonini's that's whether who's influencing who i'm 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 not sure but there, there's a there's a movement i think it's it's it's, it's yeah it's, it's fair to say I, I think that's true. I think there probably is just something happening there, you know, um, that is moving in that direction, and I, I think potentially Barb because and I and I do absolutely adore this this movie, but it doesn't. It still has a certain slight quaint isn't the right word, but it still feels like of a slightly earlier era than certainly the kind of later 60s jelly where you know every you know that there is always a pivotal scene in like a crazy disco nightclub mm. um and you know that the you know the, the 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 fashions in in this movie and it takes place in a fashion house are very elegant they become increasingly eye-watering as the uh, as the genre goes forward um you know that this one doesn't have carol baker in a lime green bodysuit um, we'll get there. Um, <laughs> it, yes, the, it, it's a little more classic. In its, yes, in, in, yeah. In its so, in so I don't know. And and you know, as I, as I mentioned previously, you know, Barber had had been in the industry for a long time at this point. You know, he was he was into his forties, uh, maybe even his fifties by this point. I, you, um, Tim Lucas would know exactly, but um, we can't afford him. So um, he, he's of an earlier generation than a lot of the directors who who followed. So yeah, there is that. I, th- I think that, and you can you actually see that in some of his later films, and certainly his later Jally, where he kind of seems a bit wrong-footed by trying to do the the crazy pop, you know, disco stuff. That like he's it, clearly not comfortable with you. It's, it's it's not really his mm. his comfortable place. And again, you know, those films have you know still have stuff to recommend them. But um, yeah, he doesn't feel as sure-footed as he does here. When you know, because this is just you know from you know it, it opens with that wonderful shot of the sign for the um, the fashion house in a rainstorm, and the sign falls off, and that pretty much tells you everything that, <laughs> yes. about the film right there. <laughs> It's like is this, this too, fashion is this too house on the nose? Is, is this too screwed. on the nose, Mario? Yeah. Yes. No, no. Yeah. There is more on the nose than fools on your nose on the fashion house, breaking your neck. Yes, on the on the on on, on the way down. It has a very international cast. It's not you know. There's as you said, there's Germans. I mean, Bartok was a nationalized Brit, and you mentioned Cameron Mitchell, who's an American. There's there's yes. Mary and Mary Arden is in it as 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 as, as well. And someone who I recognised from the Terminator, who now I can't remember. Um, um, oh well, ha- Harriet Medins in it. Who? Uh, yes, Harriet Medins. Who, sorry, yes. Who did yeah. a lot of? Um, uh, yeah, sort so of did a fair amount of, of uh, movies in Italy. She's in um, uh, a couple of 
absolutely fantastic gothic horrors um ricardo afraid of gothic horrors the horrible dr hitchcock and the ghost and she's in um the horrible dr hitchcock oh, yes Jesus, that's, that's yeah so um oh, and, 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 but then subsequently is in death race 2000 so you know she, she is uh, yeah. uh, someone you will recognize from the uh the the cult the cult era and she was in a couple of other barber films as well she was in um black sabbath and the whip and the body so you know he, he was someone clearly quite enjoyed working with um and then um so dante de paolo who plays frank the uh the dodgy drug addicted uh antique dealer oh yes because sorry yes there's there's a strong element of like uh like he's he's like a cocaine addict isn't Mm. he there's like um which the police seem to want to use as sort of a as a stick to sort of get him to to do what they Mm. want which is you know which is quite you know liberal of them if there's a guy who's dealing dealing cocaine in rome i'm sure well you know we need to i'd I'd rather get you for for murder for murdering women but you know um and and dante de paolo we just saw in the girl who knew too much because he's the uh the reporter the down and out reporter who uh, ah yes who, yes the one yeah. uh, is featured in that um, and George Clooney's uncle apparently wow uh, that? yes oh, he, was, he, he was married to Rosemary Clooney for a while so um, good lord so you know it's all connected um, and and one face that we will see time and time again um, is uh, Luciano Luciano Pagotzi um, the Italian Peter Laurie um, okay right. <laughs> who. Uh, who um, is uh, so he plays Lizar- Lazzarini and this I think he's one of the he, he works at the fashion house I, 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 I it, my, my knowledge of how a fashion house works um, is 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 minimal I'm not sure it's vastly less than the folks who made this movie because there are a lot of people who are in the fashion house who were just they're doing things occasionally poking at dresses and stuff so. yeah, i'm not sure i see anyone actually sewing it's not it's not no. i mean my knowledge of how fashion house work works generally is limited to i've watched phantom thread um <laughs> but but i understand there's some people doing some sewing quite a lot you're not a fan of the rag trade oh the, yeah that's there are there are, it's not one of my top sitcoms no. <laughs> <laughs> yeah um, yeah, so you have uh, you have these various, and I think a lot of the a lot of the cast, certainly the male cast, are there to be suspects. Um, yeah, honestly, um, so that uh, Thomas Reiner, who is a German actor who plays the inspector, can basically kind of put them all in a line, poke at them, and they can shout at each other and, and accuse each other of being the killer, which is great. I mean, this this, this is all you know terrific stuff, um, and as we go. Unfortunately, the uh, the models kind of become. I mean, <laughs> literally in my notes, I have sexy corpse number one, sexy corpse number two, uh, sexy-ish corpse number three, because I think she's the one who ends up with the uh, horrific facial burns. Um, oh yes, but she sort of gets two goes because um, that's Peggy, I think, isn't it? She yes, ste- it is. She steals the diary mm-hmm. and like, and then she re- she reads the diary, which which seals her fate. But then the killer comes to her house and knocks her unconscious because there's someone coming. But and you think, oh, this is going to take a turn. No, he just and when she wakes up and then she recognises who the killer is, he burns her face off. Mm. Oh, yes, Mary that's, Arden, yeah. that's Peggy. Yes, um, yes, that's Mary and, Yes, and that is um, the the in the wonderful introduction of um, Chekhov's handbag. Uh, because the diary is in his is in her handbag, and there is this extraordinary sequence of everyone looking at the handbag, 
as it's prominently placed in the foreground of, of the action, um, Barva just sort of milking it for all it's worth. I, I, I do love the fact that she's sort of, she has the diary. Everyone is kind of wants the diary. So she's going to go and take a phone call. She looks around at everyone looking at her bag, picks up the bag to take it away so that it's, you know, not left alone, then puts it down somewhere else and then goes and takes the call. <laughs> now, she puts it yeah. down in the foreground of the shot so that it looks beautifully framed, but I do quite like that. It'll be fine here. It was no good over there, but here it'll be okay. Mm. Um I guess it's more. I guess it's more open and 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 surrounded by people running about doing a fashion show. And yes, there's a lovely little bit there where the the telephone is is bright red, um, which is the same phone that was actually in the um, the the sequence in in um, Black Sabbath in the, in the, um, the telephone segment even. Um, and mm. yes, I, I've I've heard some. I, I think it was a, even a contemporary review at the time. So um, Italian cinema, there's this thing about phones. Um, so kind of early crime and kind of noirish films in Italy were referred to as black telephone movies. Right, um, yes, yes. And then under the, uh, again, under the fascist regime, um, where such things were, were not really um, considered proper, um, they developed what was no, became known as the white telephone movies, which were kind of stories about, you know, well-to-do, you know, uh, popular rich people. Um, and they're, uh, and they're, so they all had white telephones. And I believe that, yeah, as I said, I believe there was a contemporary critic that um, said that Barva had started the red telephone genre, um, <laughs> which is actually not a bad, not a bad uh, signifier for a jello, really. <laughs> well, I mean, there's, I mean, there's a striking use of primary colour yes. in, it, th- throughout the film, but I'm wondering how much of that is what Barva wants to go through. And as, as I said earlier, is that more a general, and not just an Italian thing, I mean, is that more of a general move in the early days of... Of 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 mm. color. I mean, is I don't know where are we? 60, is it 65 So we've got sort of you know we're on to sort of um, the second or third sort of Hammer Dracula films by this sort of mm. point. Is there a is there a similar sort of uh, gratuitous 60, use of sixty four? I'm sorry, before the internet corrects me. Sixty four. Okay, right. So you know, yeah, well, I the equivalent. I don't know that anyone uses colours quite so quite so lavishly and joyously. Um, I mean, as, as as wonderful as the kind of Eastman colour hammers are, um, just the sheer, you know, like the sort of the red mannequins in the fashion house. It, it's mm. just so mm. kind of and that vibrant. bit with the, the colour is where the, ca- the camera the tracks screen. through them. Yeah, yeah, it's, yes. It's, um, it, yeah, so it's really and and the way that Barva loved coloured gels, you know, so everything, you know, mm, there is there mm. isn't really a background or even a foreground often where there is not sort of some kind of colour intervention that's not happening actually on the scenery or the character. It's it's something that's been added actually. Um, and but just thinking about the sort of the the pop art of the uh, the mannequins that they that they use, probably. I mean, I assume this is just deliberative, you know. The art direction of the film is anything generally to, 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 to go by. But what we were saying earlier about the actually probably I said classical, but I probably like in, in the interiors are, are quite baroque in terms of you know the mm. the, the, the fireplace and the and the ornaments that mm. sticks out as the fashion place as something where even if the fashions themselves are not are not the most modern, those the 
the the striking imagery of the of the of the sort of pop art mannequin sort of stands out at the next level of which may be something alluding to what you say earlier when later films uh, had a sort of sort of a, a, a modern art or pop art discotheque or um, mm. mod, modern interiors that as as part as part as as part of the visual style perhaps we see the the beginnings of that with the the scenes among the among the mannequins yeah yeah and it's certainly um something that um he clearly liked that because there's a there's a later jello that he made called uh, hatchet for the honeymoon which has um it has the red mannequins again so um, right okay. it was an element that that uh, he thought was was interesting and, and signifying um something because the, the I, I don't know if the mannequins are, are kind of a shorthand for the for what's going on in in the fashion house or the victims in some way because there, there is a limit because you are in the 60s and even though this is uh for the time a surprisingly explicit film um there's there's only a, there's a limit to uh how much and for how long you can kind of show um the victims in in a state of semi-undress or you know covered in blood or whatever it is um but the the mannequins are ever present so the kind of the mm. the, the, the the bodies are always there kind of in if not kind of center of frame you know sort of in the background and because they're so vibrantly colored you can you, you can't all not notice them um which i think is an interesting interesting touch um whether or not it was you know that that was the deliberate intent but it it, it always draws the eye the title sequence is striking for that note that it moves around the room and sort of uh, photographs the our cast Mm. as essentially if they are mannequins Uh, and that that's a that that's that's visually arresting Yes, interesting that that's not in the American version. That was one of the things oh, that really? they changed. Oh, yeah, okay. They used a, a, a kind of animated credit sequence, um, which you know turns up on DVDs these days as an extra. But um, right, okay. yeah, that that it, that is really interesting, and it's it, the the static, yeah, as, as you say, the, and they're not static shots, but the um, no, no, but they they hold they hold a pose. Yes, the uh, yeah. the, the cast are uh, standing still as as you say, frozen as if mannequins. Is there um, something to be read into a dislike of the fashion industry, or is that just a convenient trope to use? Oh, uh, that's a that's a good question. Um, I don't know. It's certainly not very flattering towards the fashion industry. Um, no, but I'm wondering again how much that's that's barber, or how much of that this is just an easy go to. We know what the fashion industry is. It's probably something where. It's there's a huge there's a vast amount of you know competition cattiness self consumption um, yes where uh, you know it's easy to sort of pit people against each other. I imagine that it's if whether this is true or not but there's a perception of that it's it's yeah it's a competitive it's a competitive thing yeah. often you know women will is someone saying that women or the models will stab each other in the back rather than work together whether men can exploit that or whether there's something to say oh i'm just reading far 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 yeah. far, far too far too much into that um I, yeah i don't know if it's intentional but as you say you know there are more layers to this than you might give it credit mm, for mm. on kind of an initial well it looks very pretty and there are stabbings you know it's yeah. um you know, there's some interesting stuff going on. Not least the, the again the the final identities of um, those responsible, which, yeah. as it turns out, is and again spoiler warning, um, it, it's not a 
it's not a single killer at all. It's no. actually two people and they are um, different genders. So for the, the second official uh, Jallo film, we have a uh, female antagonist. But then there is um, there is killing to be done between the killers. Absolutely. Uh, as they, yeah, as they are a husband and wife team, but not an entirely happy or inconvenient marriage. Yes, very much yeah. so. So... Um, yeah, and and you know the 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 twist ultimately lean, leads to another twist that they, again spoilers, um, end up killing each other. <laughs> yeah. Um, whilst the police well, I mean, kind what, of do nothing. Yes. It's oh, it's absolutely. It's not the. I think it's the last one we'll see where the police actually have really no um, positive uh, influence on the outcome, mm. on the on the outcome of the plot. And when, and when the uh, the killer revealed to. Uh, have married the female killer in order to um uh, it's to inherit i think uh, i think money you sort of know that whatever happens he can't get away with that yes um but then she can't because she is also responsible for the for, for the killing so it it wraps itself up quite neatly in in, in, in any case yes and um i know you said earlier that it's it's sort of, it's sort of it can't go too far but that um the final well, sorry, not the final killing, but the final model killing, as, as it were, mm. of the piece, where the they set up the fake um, suicide of is it Tao Li? Tao Li, yes. Yeah, I'm not entirely sure what nationality Tao Li is supposed to be, uh, but that, <laughs> yes, but it, it it is it isn't it isn't the nationality of the actor playing her. No, um, um, but they they do it quite subtly. But if I didn't know her name was Tao Li, I, I prob- probably wouldn't have get that she's meant to be from somewhat further east of Italy. Uh, yes. Than we're, never, nevertheless, he- the, her, her, her um, ethnicity is heavy eye makeup. It is, it is yes, it's stretched. Um, uh, but nevertheless, that, that shot of her lying dead uh, in, her, in her see-through bra in the bath in, with heavy with makeup, and then as the blood diffuses, is... Mm. Uh, is is an arresting image. Yes, um, that's probably. I, I, I would say that, and the um, well, actually, yeah, <laughs> the, that and the uh, the the face against the um, burning stove are probably the most graphic scenes. But actually, most of the murders have got some fairly striking element. Um, you know, say the siege weapon to the face. Whilst sort of most of that is off off camera, it's the setup and the the stalking is still quite effective considering this is a film from from 64 yeah although have you have you seen um uh, is it a maldivar's uh matador i have not ah uh, because that because uh, um, uh, that's right yeah because uh, uh th- someone's watching um, blood and black lace in the in the film uh and decides to and masturbates to this scene right <laughs> which is some way is infinite i mean not that Amaldivar isn't a problematic director in his own right, uh, but that's I think far more far more problematic than anything that actually happens in in, in this film. But that's another that's another story. Well, anyway, uh, you know the, the, there is no doubt that the continuing popularity of um, certainly Italian exploitation and exploitation in general is because it does have you know a a melding of the violent and the erotic, shall we say, and certainly in 
I think it's probably fair to say in this movie, but definitely many of the films that followed, um, you know, those scenes are being done specifically to titillate. So I, I guess Almodovar is, is commenting uh, very much on that. And, you know, the fact that this is tame compared to what came later, you know, doesn't kind of take away from the fact that at the time it, it must have been really quite shocking mm. to kind of see that in, in what otherwise, you know, appears to be, you know... It, I mean, it was not an expensive film. Uh, famously, Barber complained that, you know, he didn't have a dolly. He had a little child's, you know, red cart to pull the camera along on. Um, oh, my God. Because, you know, for, so for all of those amazing tracking shots, it's a little, you know, child's toy, basically. But it doesn't look cheap because that was, you know, one, you know, much, you know, much like Bernard Robinson and Terence Fisher and the folks at Hammer and Roger Corman at AIP, you know, Barber could take not very much and make it look expensive um so this doesn't look like a cheap exploitation movie but it absolutely you know the, there are cheap exploitation elements within it which given the genre we're talking about is is you know a certainly a draw and you know and it, it would be disingenuous of me to say you know one of the reasons why these you know i like these movies is because they have those you know have those elements what uh, was the um overall reaction to the release of Blood and Black Lace? Um, it was generally reasonably successful, I believe. Um, um, so it did it did moderately well. It certainly, as I said, it was successful in, enough in Germany that um, that kind of subsequent crimi films ended up being shot in, in colour. But then, I guess, given the time period, um, you know, things were moving towards colour anyway. Um, but yeah, it wasn't like a massive international success, but it was certainly successful enough and and more successful, um, I think, in Italy than The Girl He Knew Too Much. In in terms of uh, international releases, I know you said it was obviously there was mm. uh, there was there was the German release as well. AIP wasn't doing Barva by this stage, were they? No, no. So I think. Uh, Probably on the basis of the the aggravation that he had with them kind of messing around with his previous films, and certainly I know mm. that he was not really very happy with the treatment that they gave uh, Black Sabbath, um, because not only did they uh, change the, the the Jello segment to being a ghost story, which is ridiculous, <laughs> um, they actually switched the order of the stories around. Um, to put the one with Boris Karloff, which in the original version is in the middle, they put that at the end, which presumably is because you know the American audience would know who Boris Karloff was, so they wanted him, you know, to to wrap things up, I guess. Um, but there's a very distinctive and deliberate kind of ramping up in each story as to you know the first one's quite scary the second one's scarier the last one is terrifying so if you move it mm. elsewhere in the film then the the, the kind of narrative the build of tension um just doesn't really then work um, and they got les baxter to change the music and he went you know completely overboard as he you know tended to do so there's way too much music when in the italian version there is kind of silence that lends you know adds to the tension as well so so he was not i don't think he was very happy about that and thus it appears that it wasn't even offered to aip to release so um i actually don't know i he may have gone they may have gone back to them later i honestly i couldn't 
say for sure. But yeah, subsequent subsequent films um, that he made that were more in the kind of straight horror vein, um, I think did uh, did. Better, but then you know he sort of after this, um, you know he did Planet of the Vampires and and um, uh, Kill Baby Kill, which is another extremely fabulous gothic horror, Danger Diabolic, which you know is, is was a big mm-hmm. kind of big hit. So, um, and, um, and then and then after that are less good, um, <laughs> um, but, but still have interesting elements. Um, and then in like seventy one, he did um, Bay of Blood, which basically the existence of the entire Friday the Thirteenth fl- franchise is pretty much because of Bay of Blood. So, um, oh, interesting. You know, he uh, he he continued to work in 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 the genre with with you know sort of lesser or greater success. I mean, he he's a director that feel, you know really should have been better known while he was alive and has been you know discovered. Subsequently, um, and revered subsequently, I think very justifiably. Um, uh, but he didn't have, and I think as, as well because I, I think I mentioned last time he was not um, generally known as someone who liked the spotlight. So he wasn't really, um, you know, like um, Argento. Quite early in his directing career, was you know presenting a, a horror anthology show on Italian TV. So he was, you know, his face was out there. Barber really didn't do that, and he also carried on working. Um, even though he was a director now, he 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 carried on working as um, a cinematographer and doing effects and things for other people's movies, which um, it's kind of been thought probably didn't do his career any good because you know he was sort of still kind of seen as someone who was working, you know, a, a jobbing artisan rather than an extraordinary <laughs> visual stylist and you know amazing kind of creator of tension necessarily while he was alive so it's well received in certain areas not as well received particularly in uh, in, in in italy as you said although in 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 germany but it's now sort of the go-to starting point um, woman who knew too much notwithstanding as the as 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 the beginning of as the, as the big as the beginning of Jalo. when did uh that legacy become apparent is it a fairly recent thing or is this a if if Jello now takes off after say argento's argento's time when was when was this reassessed yeah as i mean it, he certainly started um gaining acclaim because um, i guess a lot of these films were kind of seen on tv um as as time went on so kind of in in the um i guess potentially the 60s but Possibly the seventies. Um, oh, so not too far after they were. Yeah, I would. I, I, I think so. And and you know, I mean, and, and obviously in horrible pan and scan versions with the color grading all wrong. Mm. Um, but you know, I mean, the thing the, the, the thing with Barber is he was celebrated by um, other filmmakers. So you know, um, Scorsese is a huge fan. Um, right. You know, Tim Burton. You know, basically spent his entire career you know lifting bits from black sunday the definitive work on on barber's kind of life and career is is tim lucas's book all the colors of the dark which i know is a giallo that he didn't make <laughs> yes <laughs> confusing strangely. Enough. Yes, um but i can't I, but i know what he's talking about in terms of the uh, you know barber's use of 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 color and you know particularly in sort of horror and thriller subjects 
Um, and so that came out in 2007. So certainly by then, there's definitely a a reappraisal going on. Uh, the, the book grew out of uh, the magazine Video Watchdog, which is sadly now defunct in its print form, but for a long time was, was a, a magazine that focused on exactly this kind of, of material. Um, and, you know, he'd been writing about um, Italian horror directors um, and Barber specifically for a long time before that. And, you know, it, in the book, so the one of the, um, the forward is written by Ricardo Freda, who Barber worked with on Ivan Peary and Kaltiki the Immortal Monster and, and had worked with um, That was the director I, that walked off the set. Yes, that's correct. Yes, um, and so the, the, the forward in the book is it's dated uh, um, 1984 so that's a long time before the book was published so so clearly right. you know there's a lot of uh, critical writing happening even if it was only tim at that point that was doing it um certainly that reappraisal was was happening you know so you talk you're certainly talking like the 80s i think is when this stuff got started getting picked up on and despite the fact that you said that people like martin scorsese are heavily influenced or at least influenced by 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 barber's work just and and despite the fact we're only five years out from his first film, Argento claims he wasn't influenced by Barber. That's right. Yes, he Argento said that he was more of, uh, funny enough, more of a Freda fan, uh, I think. But um, yeah, I, I I I you know I I don't know how much of that is genuine. Argento spent a long time being asked, "Are you influenced by Mario Barber?" which right. probably got quite annoying. <laughs> um, so I, I suspect that at least partly some of it is down to will you just shut up about Mario Bloody Barva? There are certainly elements that seem to have crossed directly from Blood and Black Lace to not just Bird with Crystal Plumage, but a number of Argento films, you know, the look of the killer, you know, the raincoat, the gloves, the hat, not necessarily the mask, but, you know, that kind of silhouette. But then that that also is not necessarily, you know, exclusive to to Barber, you know, it's a very, um, you know, it's a very noirish silhouette, it's, you know, it's something that, that's sort of turned up elsewhere, so... Um, but I guess just because they're both working in, you know, very specific... Uh, type of Italian film the, the comparisons are going to be drawn um, but he must have seen Barva films oh, surely yeah, yeah. It, <laughs> as, as, a, as a film critic I think he would definitely have, have seen them um, whether he you know, had studied them and deliberately kind of um, lifted from them um, homaged let's say um, <laughs> only he knows, you know, Umberto Lenzi, who, uh, you know, no- notable for several uh, extremely good jelly with, with Carol Baker and some slightly more iffy ones without, and, you know, lots of Italian action films and, and uh, a couple of cannibal movies. Um, I mean, he swears blind that uh, Dario Argento, you know, ripped everything off from him. So, um, you know, who knows? Uh, but. Uh, it's it's an interesting conversation to have. It is a conversation we will have. In we will be covering uh, we will be covering Burb the Crystal Plumage and Argento, but not for a couple of episodes yet. A, no, no. So next next time uh, we're looking at uh, so we're still kind of in the proto Jallo 
uh, period when things hadn't really solidified as they were subsequently going to. So we've got sort of an art house jello in the form of in the form of Franco Rossellini and Luigi Bazzoni's The Possessed, aka The Lady in the Lake. La Donna del Lago. That's the one. Uh, because of course he's a drunken Spaniard, as he says that that that's what that <laughs> that's what that accent sounded like. That will be the first and last time I attempt to say a giallo film in its Italian in it with its with its Italian title. But yes, anyway, let's let's until until next time. For more on the Jallo in general and Mario Barber in particular, check out the recommendations in the show notes. Join us again next time as we travel to a small lakeside town full of dark secrets in Luigi Bazzoni and Franco Rossellini's The Possessed. Thanks for listening and goodbye. Clear quite a lot up in the edit there. <laughs> <laughs>